At photographycourse.net, you'll be able to swap your expertise with other photographers, make light instead of wishing for it, expand your portfolio, and receive feedback from professionals, all of which will develop your artistic eye. Photographycourse.net offers an abundance of premium courses and challenges for participants at every stage of their journey, from technical settings for portrait photography, to landscape composition tricks, to how to start your own photography business, we have everything you need to start shooting confidently. You can work at a pace that suits you. Our 52-week project challenge will provide you with the educational resources, encouragement, and support that you need to take great photographs every week. You can join us at any time as our themes are evergreen. You can also start by shooting every day and learning something new with our 365 Days of Photography course. Led by an industry expert who has mentored over 10,000 students, this course will help you take your photography skills to the next level with daily, bite-sized videos. Throughout the process of learning, you'll have access to a community that will provide you with inspiration and motivation. Get encouragement from other photographers every single day. Our current limited time offer comes with a special discount code exclusive to the listeners of this podcast. Get 50% off your first year as a premium member. Claim this discount by going to photographycourse.net and entering the coupon code PODCAST. Come join photographycourse.net and capture more than just a moment. Have you ever dreamed of starting your own photography business? If yes, then check out our new course, How to Start a Photography Business. It's led by pro-American photographer Crystal Kenny. She offers a breakdown on everything you need to succeed and make great money running your own photography business. Check out the link in the show notes to find out more. Hello everyone, my name is Taya and I'm the host of Great Big Photography World podcast, where we interview notable photographers in the industry, give advice on a wide variety of topics, and provide tips for beginners and professionals alike. In this episode, I speak with Alex Garcia a talented photojournalist and director with a very impressive portfolio. We talk about his beginnings in photojournalism, from working for newspapers to creating his own company, and much more. Please enjoy. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the podcast. I'm very happy to have you here. Please introduce yourself to the listeners. Sure. Hi, I'm Alex Garcia. I'm a photographer, photojournalist based in Chicago, um, and I have... uh, been based here most of my life, uh, except for a few jaunts around the country uh, working at various newspapers. Great introduction. I like your work. I stumbled upon your portfolio just through Google. I was looking for photojournalists whose work stood out to me, and yours was one of the first pages that popped up. And you have a very diverse portfolio. I think the listeners will be very interested to find out more about you and your work. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Let's start with the technical side of things. I know that photographers don't always like to talk about camera equipment uh, because it's obviously not the most important thing, but uh, I think this information could maybe help someone. So what camera equipment do you use? Yeah, I mean, normally I would agree with that about the technical side of things, but I think especially if you're going to do work as a photojournalist, your your equipment is going to be put, um, is going to be put through various demands, right? Um, because you're going to be photographing all sorts of things in the rain, snow, sleet, you know, uh, shine, everything, low light all the time. Um, so, so I, for the longest time, I was a, a Nikon guy. And then I, when I was working at newspapers, uh, there was a big switch over to Canon gear for uh for a lot of newspapers around the country. And so a lot of my equipment was provided by the company that I was working with, especially when you're on staff. And uh, so then I came to the trip. So I went to the LA Times and then into the Tribune and then Chicago Tribune, I also had a can of gear. So when I left, which I left voluntarily, uh, there's a lot of layoffs, but um, I left because, um, and buyouts, but I left because there was an opportunity that I had that I thought was just too good to pass up. And so when I left, I was kind of hoping that they may just say, hey, you could, you know, take your gear. Maybe we can strike a deal with your gear, your Canon gear. Uh, And they said, uh, no, forget it. (laughs) So I basically uh, had Nikon at home and it was uh, like a D800 or something like that. Or D750, no, D800. 
And then I started, I so I used that for a brief while, but it got to the point where I was shooting more video. And Nikon didn't really have a good solution for video uh, at the time. And not something that you could really grow, right? And turn into something bigger and more serious uh, as, a, as a filmmaker. And so I was looking around at Canon and, and uh, Sony and Canon didn't really have uh, a lot of lower cost options for you know, 4K and some of those things. So I, I looked at what Sony was doing, I had a whole bunch of friends who were shooting Sony. Um, and uh, on one of my workshops to Cuba, I had uh, some Sony artisans with me and they basically, uh, and Sony actually sponsored the trip by giving everybody Sony cameras and me one of them. And I took a look at it and I was like, this is fantastic. I'm actually, uh, I love this. It was mirrorless at the time. So, which is a little bit ahead of where everyone was at uh, because it, people were still shooting with their DSLRs. And I just loved it. Um, There's a little few hinky things about it that they've since have groomed out. But so now I shoot all Sony um, still camera an FX6 uh, video camera by Sony. So basically for motion projects, I use a Sony FX6 with the A7S III uh, that is, has the same chip in it, but it's in the mirrorless form. And then I have three Sony A7R III and, uh, for lower light situations. Um, I, you know, I will be graduating shortly, hopefully to an A1, um, but I just, you know, need to, need to think through all that stuff. You're right though. Technically, it's not the most important thing. Um, and I try to tell photographers not to invest in gear too early with their, especially if they're going freelance, because by the time that you think you're going to, by the time you get the clients that you think you're going to have by investing in a new camera, there's going to be a new camera out. <laughs> and so you're like, just wait until you've got, you're good and ready. Uh, and then, um, and then you'll avoid the loss of depreciation that happens when they introduce a new camera. That's very true. It's really good advice. It seems like you've gone through all kinds of equipment and now you know what works for you. And that's very important. And it's definitely something that photographers have to, I mean, they have to go through the trial and error process to find something that fits their needs and complements their creativity. Yeah. Yeah. And I like the fact that with the, both the still and the video, I can basically use the same lenses uh, because I was using, there was a short time there when I was using, I don't know, I forget, like my Nikon lens on my Sony camera, and it was just like not working, you know, on my, yeah, actually, no, I had bought a, um, I was shooting Nikon stills, and then for video, I was using a, a Canon, um, the, the um, their cinema uh, video camera, and trying to switch lenses between the both of them, that was, the C100, and the, it just wasn't working, and so that's when I switched uh, over to Sony, so. That's good that you have something that works for you for both video and still photography. And speaking yeah. of videos, you don't just take photos. Obviously, as I just said, uh, you also make videos and you're also a director. What was it like to transition from only shooting digitally to directing motion projects or hybrid shoots? Well, it's not for any, everyone. I can tell you that. I mean, because basically it taxes all of your sort of emotional, interpersonal skills um, also your organizational skills. I mean, um, oftentimes still photographers are asked by assigning editors to do some kind of, um, you know, oh, shoot video too, you know, like it's an afterthought. And every and everybody knows that video sucks all the air out of the room because as soon as you start going with it, it just wants to take over, right? And so when, and then when you start elevating those, the video, with the audio, with the light, with the, with the moving, you know, with the motion and, and, you know, camera controls and stabilizers. And then you're dealing with people. You might not be dealing with um, real people anymore. You might be dealing with actors. You know, you, suddenly you've got a situation that can quickly escalate into a, from what used to be like a sole person endeavor into like a, a multi-party team of people working together on a project. And you've got to not only manage that, uh, but stay ahead of everyone, uh, provide a vision for, for people, um, you know, hire correctly. Um, so it's, it's certainly a far easier to basically go to just stay being a photographer or a sole video person, videographer, I hate to use the word videographer, but it is what it is. And it's just so, sometimes I look at it and be like, wait, 
like at the end of the day, is it, <laughs> it's creatively very satisfying for me to create these short films or to create some video components to, to projects. Yeah, but there are times where I was like, man, it's a lot simpler just to like work with my still camera <laughs> and some lighting and an assistant or two. Um, you know, but uh, so I would say that basically um, it's been uh, creatively very satisfying because you get to, it's more, emo you can create more emotional reactions in your viewers, especially when you pair your, your videos with music. Um, music is very powerful, very, very powerful. And, but it's also something that, uh, you know, is, like I said, is not for, not for everybody. You're right. It's definitely not for everybody. And I think the same applies to any genre of photography, like photojournalism, for example, it definitely comes with its own set of requirements. So I'm curious to know, in your opinion, what makes a good photojournalist? Well, that's, that's a great point. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, certainly, there's very different types of genre in, in, in photojournalism. Here's the one thing that I don't think people fully understand about it. They'll, they may look at the news and be like, I can take that picture. And, you know, <laughs> and like, oh, I can take that picture. And yeah, it's true. They could probably take that picture. However, there is a whole mess of logistical and uh, operational and ethical um, issues involved in photojournalism that people don't really truly realize. Like it's not you've got to make a really great picture under the most challenging of conditions, like standing on one foot falling backwards in the rain with like, you know, shooting at one thirtieth of a second wide open and you've got to get, and the photo's got to be sharp. And then you've got to turn around and get that photo back on deadline with all the names and information of everybody that you just shot, you know, back to an editor and you've got to do so uh, without complaining <laughs> because no one wants to hear about it. So it's like, it's really, there's, you have to be able to be creative, um, make, you know, as they often say, make um, chicken salad out of, you know, chicken, you know what. And, you know, so it's like very, um, it's very demanding like that. I would say the other, the couple other things that people don't understand is that ethically speaking, your editor has to know that you are you understand the conventions of journalism, the ethics of journalism. You can't be sharing photos with your subject before the story gets published. You can't be showing your photos to your subjects before, you know, it gets published. You have to know your legal rights. You have to know uh, their legal rights. You have to know privacy issues. So you can't be taking photos do that or you know, through this or through that. So there are all sorts of minefields uh, that are in journalism that an editor who is doing their job well should want to verify that you understand before you go out there. And, you know, if they're just plucking you off of Instagram to make a portrait, that's one thing. But if you think you're going to basically just get an assignment of, you know, shooting some protest or something like that, uh, just based upon your Instagram profile, I think, you know, you, you, I would very much doubt that that that's going to be a possibility for any editor who basically respects the, the ethics and conventions of photojournalism, uh, because there's a lot more to it that people realize. Um, having said that, one last thing I want to say is that, like, I some of the best photographers that you'll photojournalists you'll ever meet are not only masters of strategy, but they are masters of anticipation. Um, I had a blog at the Chicago Tribune for four years where i wrote on a weekly basis um it was called assignment chicago uh it's still up you can find it my mass set is gone because i'm no longer working there but um one of the things that i often wrote what i wrote about is that to be a photo a really great photojournalist is to be able to anticipate you have to anticipate your positioning the emotion the timing you have to be in the right position at the right time with the right camera with the right lens all ready to go and you know and then be strategic about that as well. Like, you know, you have to know who are the players, when are they likely to react? Uh, you know, where's the best, you know, situation to be? And what's the story going to be? What is it? You know, all these things you're thinking through your mind, just like maybe like a baseball player does when they're, you know, bottom of the ninth and they're waiting two outs and, you know, you've got to figure out what you're going to do if the, if the ball goes here, if the ball goes there. There's all sorts of anticipatory uh, demands that are going to put, be put on you as a photojournalist and the best ones out there are the ones who basically are, have thought through all those options and chosen uh, by skill, luck or providence, the right position to be in to, to make that photo. 
It's very interesting. You're right. We don't usually see the behind the scenes of a photojournalist's life. So when we see a picture on the news or just online, we assume like, oh, I could have taken that as well. But as you said earlier, uh, it's very interesting to hear about your experiences. And I personally didn't know that you can't show your subjects your photos until they get published. That's a new discovery to me. Wow. Well, it's like showing, it's like a reporter showing their notes to a subject, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who does that? No one does that, right? And you can't be, and, and the one time that I did break my own rule, I got into a literal, like, chokehold with a celebrity. <laughs> because the person was like, you can't, you, sh- you need to delete those other images. I'm like, no, don't worry, we're not going to use those photos. There's like, no, the other, your other editor might see those photos and might want to use it. I'm like, no, don't worry, I, I, I'm not going to send them the edit. And she actually was insisting that I delete the, the images out of my camera right there. And I'm like, uh, I'm sorry, you're not paying me. You are not, you know, we are a non, you know, we are a neutral observer of the situation. We, that don't, that doesn't give control over to the person. However, I have, to my utter shock and dismay, I have seen some behind the scenes of like a photographer who I will show not name, who works, uh, you know, at a, at a newspaper showing photos of of a celebrity to them while he's taking the picture. And I just was like, I felt like that's just, you You just can't cross, you just can't cross that line. And no editor I've known has told me that it's okay to do that. It's, it's a bad, it's just like too many cooks in the kitchen. You're, cre- you're creating an ex- you're creating a situation where the person is likely going to be calling your editor saying, don't use that photo. And then getting into this whole like control issue. It's, it's a bad idea. Yeah. It's a lot of things that you need to consider. But when you take photographs of people out on the street or something, or even if they know that you're photographing them, do you let them know that you won't be able to show them the pictures? Or is it something that everybody just understands? Well, no. I mean, sometimes people have a respectful understanding of it, right? They say, oh, okay, you know, and you can just say, no, it looks great. You look fantastic. This is great. And they know the situation in general. So it's not like they're trying to, you're not trying to fool anybody. You know, it is you, again, what I was saying before about having some interpersonal skills to be a photojournalist, you're having to navigate all sorts of uh, situations with people. Like some of the best photos you'll ever make as a photojournalist are going to be based upon the access you get. And the access you get is going to be based on the access that you negotiate with somebody. So you kind of you have to have those skills. So if somebody asks me, oh, can we see the pictures? And I say, uh, I try to just play it off. I don't, you know, no one wants to hear no, right? Especially when they're giving of their time. Um, but it's not a, it's not like I'm trying to be selfish. It's just trying to, it's, it's an ethic. It's an issue of ethics. You have, you know, you just have to um, not get in a situation where the person is um, going to be, um, start, start demanding that, that you use one picture over another. Now, having said that, there might be some exceptions that, that, that I might make. Like if you're in a situation where you're photographing somebody who can't be, who can't have their identity shown, right? And you're like, okay, well, this is what I'm thinking of. This is what the picture probably will look something like, right? Where you can't see their face. And they're like, oh, I get it. Because they don't understand, you know, underexposure. I'm going to underexpose by four stops or whatever, you know? <laughs> so you can't see your face. Don't worry. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Um, you know, but besides for that, you know, it's, you can just, I usually pass it off as a joke. Say I've got, I've got too many editors back at the office or they don't allow me, they don't allow me to do this. Uh, it's just a situation you want to avoid at all costs. That's right. Nobody likes to know. (laughs) I know, I know. I feel bad, but it's just like, it's one of those situations where it's like even the most innocent request turns into a power struggle and you just never know. You just never know. That's right. You never know. And you have to be, as a photojournalist, good at saying no, as you said, very subtly, without offending anybody. And you have to right. you have to be able to interact with a wide variety of people and be diplomatic at all times. I'm assuming that's really difficult, too. That's also something that just comes with the job of being a photojournalist. You have to be a people person, I guess, right? Yeah, it really helps to be a people person. It really does. Yeah, absolutely. You have a company called Three Story Media. What was the inspiration behind the name, and what does this company represent? So, 
um, yeah, I left the, the I left the Tribune um, and basically wanted to create a company that basically did both hybrid um, still and and video projects. Uh, one of the things that I had noticed uh, in some of the projects that I'd worked on as a photographer is that when you're dealing with people in in the corporate world. So now, so just as a little bit more of a background. You know, when you when you don't have a staff job as a photojournalist somewhere, you have to freelance, right? And freelancing in photojournalism is very, very hard to make a living at, especially when you've got kids and, you know, a mortgage and all that good stuff. So there's just really the fees that they pay are abominable. A lot of a lot of a lot of newspapers. Some are and even the fees that are that they've raised. I think some places have tripled them, which is pretty amazing. It's still like you know you're not working every day, uh, so it's like you you need other forms of revenue. So I always encourage people who are leaving newspapers to make a, a living as a photojournalist, or even people starting out, is you know you've got to create a good blend of, of clients from from your editorial clients, nonprofit to corporate. Um, obviously, corporate is going to pay the best out of all of those, and advertising oftentimes even better um but you you know you've got to create a blend so uh, what i noticed in working with corporations and other places is that people will go further in their careers the people who hire you people work with you if they manage if they can show their managing chops right to their superiors so i would often be called a team <laughs> even if i was a sole individual or maybe with an assistant because everybody gets ahead by managing teams. So I'm like, okay, I'll play this game. So <laughs> partly I felt like having a company created, uh, got, got myself out of, out of the expectation that I was just a sole individual photographer, right? Uh, because there were times when I felt more like the sole freelancer who could be taken advantage of, right? But when you've got a little bit more of a company behind you, uh, I think that was, um, it provided me a little bit more of an expectation that people receive that I am there for them, ready to scale up uh, at a moment's notice uh, to whatever team that they needed in order to execute on a vision, right? Um, and so I felt like having a company created that expectation that would not only uh, execute any vision they had, but also create that team that they really wanted to have. Everybody feels safer working with teams. My wife, uh, who is, a, uh, we met at the Tribune, she was a photo editor uh, when we met. We met actually on the first day of work, long story. But she um, and I started the company. She is the creative director of the company. So basically, we both work together. Um, she provides a lot of the creative direction, you know, and brainstorming, you know, does some other um, aspects of the business as well. Um, but at the end of the day, it is, it, it's mostly me. Uh, and so... What we do is we wanted a, a business that that carried forth the storytelling that we had both learned uh, at newspapers over the years uh, into a world, a greater world that still needed storytelling, and that was kind of the reason why we wanted to keep the word story in the to name of the of the company. So that's why we call it Three Story Media. Um, the three came about because we were going to name it. 10-story media, because we like the idea of a 10-story building, right? There was something about that. And then ultimately, we ended up on three-story uh, because we liked the idea of telling your story in three different ways, video, audio, and still photography. Um, there's also a marketing angle to it, which is three, story, three ways, uh, you, your audience, and your message. Uh, and then spiritually speaking, we realized we weren't going to get anywhere without without God's help, you know, because we also love our, our gut to be able to do this. And, and uh, the three has a Trinity kind of feeling to it. And we like that as well. So that was kind of the reason for the name. So it's really cool. Thank you for sharing that story. And I love the meaning behind the name. It represents a lot of interesting, and very valuable things for sure. And I think it's very difficult to leave a full time job that's attached to a company that can provide you with stability and start over. Oh yes. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I was just laughing. Yes, very much. So I have a story for that. If you need. <laughs> oh yes, please. Yes. If you want, let me know. So I was freelancing for the longest time of the tribute thinking, you know, this is, does not look like a situation that's sustainable for me long-term. 
Um, and if anyone's been watching how newspapers have basically been taken over by hedge funds and things like that, they realize that journalism has 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 had some not so easy times the past decade. Uh, so I was looking for an opportunity to leave, and it so happened that a friend of mine um, was the director of marketing at a at a major hospital system in, in the Chicago area. And he started pleading with me to come work for him to do some freelance work. And I put him off and I put him off. I'm like, yeah, you know, I like my staff job. It's fine. I don't think your opportunities are going to be that that good, right? And then he started to tell me about the budgets involved. And I was like, and the three-year campaign that was going to be on like buses and billboards and all that stuff. And I was like, wow. Okay, suddenly it became this I cannot take this opportunity because it was like probably the best opportunity that you're ever going to get to basically uh, leverage your way out of journalism a day or daily newspapering, I should say. Um, and so I, I took the I, I said, let's do this. And so I asked first, I said, hey, is there any way um, that I could work both for this hospital system and for the newspaper at the same time? And, you know, because of the whole ethics thing, uh, they said, absolutely not. And I was like, I understand. Okay, but that means that this is goodbye. And so then I left. And then shortly after I left, <laughs> shortly after I left, little did I know and little did my friend know that there was this hospital merger going on and he was going to be thrown under the bus. And the entire advertising campaign was being canceled at the very moment that I was leaving. And I didn't really know this. So basically, <laughs> I left this full time staff job at the Chicago Tribune for a campaign that fell apart. And so literally like three months later, I was just shooting some portraits of doctors and it was nothing like I thought I was going to be doing. And I was grappling financially uh, for a while after that. That's insane. I'm so sorry you had to experience that. That's horrible. Yeah, it was like, it was my depression era moment. So like ever since then, like I, it's, it's been hard for me to say no. So even though this past month is, was the craziest month ever and I wasn't getting any sleep, it was, it, I, have to, I have to learn to say no to things. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this, myself included, because you go through something and it leaves you in a difficult position, whether it's financially or emotionally. And after that, you're kind of traumatized. You're like, I never want to experience that again. So I'll be extra careful. So I'm sure this is something a lot of people have felt in their lives. So I think it's a normal reaction. But so, okay. So you, yes, sorry, go ahead. No, it's very true. It's very true. So you had this terrible experience, this depression era, and then you started working for the LA Times? No. So I worked for the LA Times and then I worked for the Chicago Tribune. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so how long did it take you before you founded your company, Three Story Media? I founded the company uh, at the same time that I was leaving the Tribune. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you yeah. had that as a backup in a sense? Yeah. So that was, uh, the company actually formed in part so that I could sign the contracts uh, as the owner of that company. Um, and my, my wife really could um, before I left the Tribune. So it was really my wife was signing the contracts um, as a company and so that I wasn't getting myself into any ethical issues at all. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, so you had that as well. Okay. That's good. But I think it's uh it's very uplifting. Well not uplifting to hear a story like that, but more so just to know that even successful photographers go through these struggles where they feel it's impossible and think they've lost an opportunity. They feel like failures, but they've found a way to get back up again. It's uh, it's always uplifting to hear stories like that. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, for sure. And I will say that, like, you know, I thought it would be easier, right? Because, like, when you work at the newspaper and you're, like, kind of high profile and, I, you know, I was giving workshops for them and I was, like, talking to all these crowds and audiences and, you know, you'd think it would be easier to basically um, be a, a freelancer, but it's still the same hustle, right? You st People have their people in place already, right? So it's not like you're going to come in and, like, replace people who are trusted by various uh you know businesses or organizations they've got their people already and so you're just trying to find a way a way in and so uh and, and to have people trust you so it's uh you know i had i had some of the same kind of struggles as anybody does trying to get started um the benefit that i've had recently you know, basically leaving the tribune is that there's a lot of reporters who left the tribune a lot of editors a lot of people i enjoy working with 
talented people. Um, and they basically took buyouts or left and then they went on to do other things. And and so we've maintained in our, you know, I've kept in contact with them. So that was kind of a network that I've um, that I've been able to um, work with um, happily uh, since then. Yeah, that's great. It's very important to have connections as a photographer in any genre, I think, because if you go through a difficult situation, you can lean on that support system where you can get some valuable advice from people with more experience. It's, it's always a good idea, I think, to be a part of a community of photographers. Yeah, absolutely. I think growing your network is like the single most important thing that you can do and, and being strategic about how to grow that network. If you don't really have any contacts or industry connections, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so definitely not about saying hello, hey, how are you? Let's uh, let's be connections just to all kinds of random people. It should definitely be more meaningful than that and more strategic for sure. Photographycourse.net is a place where you can find an abundance of photography inspiration in different forms like premium courses, articles, video tutorials, editing resources, and much more. We have a thriving community where you can meet new people, receive constructive criticism, and discover new ideas every single day. Here is a message from one of our top community members, Robert Morton. Hi, my name is Rob. I specialize in wildlife photography and landscape photography. I'm a member of photographycourse.net online community. I like the community because you get some fantastic ideas and some great feedback. So take your photography to the next level by clicking the link in the description. That's what I did, and I haven't looked back. If you want to join our online community, go to photographycourse.net and enter the coupon code PODCAST to get 50% off your first year as a premium member. On your website's FAQ page, you say that emotion is often the story. Many beginners and photographer focus on the technical side of things, and they're just trying to grapple with like how to use their cameras. So. I think they miss out on the emotional side of things. So how can they get better at capturing emotions? You know, I do think that there is a base level kind of um, how you're wired that that will sort of uh, help you in this and help you in that process. Uh, some people are very good at like either intra or interpersonal uh, thinking. Uh, and I think there's a sort of base level of skill and interest in that area that you kind of have to have. Um, but I think beyond that, I think you have to think about like what is really um, the emotional dimension uh, or framework of any assignment that you receive. Like what what really is like this all about? And I think um, sort of thinking about that is is probably the best way to start. And then after that is thinking is is watching and, and seeing your subjects. Uh, I often feel like when I'm standing in an audience, right, looking for reactions of people, I often feel like I am a casting director, right, <laughs> looking to see whose face is uh, more expressive and whose faces are not, who is likely to be emotional and who isn't. And so I think um, looking around carefully and seeing sort of people's body language um, and also their facial expressions and just the way that they're their faces are, are made can make a big difference. I think one of the things that we all know is there, there's that, you know, there's that stereotype of the resting bitch face, right? Which is a terrible uh, way of putting it, but we, we all know that phrase and it, it basically uh, a resting jerk face is less, 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 less heard, but you know, some people just don't, they have a, like maybe a natural scowl in their expression. Uh, and some people have a natural, funny disposition you know like a lot of comedians right the way that they look you just automatically start laughing because of the way that they look so i think that emotion can be guided by the expressions of the natural expressions of people uh that you that are your subjects and i think keying in on those people who are more likely to be um emoting uh in a situation uh is probably one way to to make your images more emotional and then I think the other thing is to realize everyone's roles in a situation. Who is likely the person who is going to be the most important person here uh, to key in on? Who also uh, is more likely if they're all if there's three people who all have equal you know standing in a situation, maybe just key on the one or two people who are likely to be more emotional. 
right? Or a moment that is an upcoming moment that might be an emotional moment. There was, I photographed um, crime for a while. I woke, woke up every morning. I had like a 6 a.m. to you know uh, 2 p.m. shift. Um, and I had saw both the beauty and the ugly of the city of Chicago on a daily basis. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times there was death involved and there's a lot of murder involved. And you basically had to wait uh, for the family to arrive at a crime scene, right? Uh, because you just knew what was going to happen out of that. You just had to get their reaction and the reaction was likely not to be. So there was like, there's certain emotional situations that drive home the, the gravity of a situation that you need to be attuned to. Uh, and you also can't be afraid to, afraid of that either. It should be very easy and also be irresponsible, uh, to be honest, to know that a situation is going to get emotional, but because you feel awkward about it, you're going to shrink back from it. And you kind of just have to stick it out and be there even if you don't want to be there. So, you know, especially in photojournalism, there's a lot of grief and it's not pleasant to cover. Uh, no one likes to do it, uh, but it's kind of your job because it shows you what's going on. It shows you the consequences of actions of other people. So, you know, but then you get to be there too at the highest moment of their lives. And that's great too. That's a fantastic moment. And so, you know, because I'm now on my own and I don't have an assignee editor, I have to think about some of these situations beforehand. It's called, you know, pre-production, you know, in the in the freelance world. But you think about what situations are likely going to become more emotional, right? And that, and when you choose to go to a situation uh, is going to determine whether or not your pictures are going to have emotions as well. So you have to think ahead of time, when is this going to get good? Because a lot of times the signing editors and newspapers, don't, they're just too busy and we got other people and we need this covered and you got to you know, do something hours before it actually gets good. And that kind of is unfortunate. But if you have the freedom to say, hey, wait, let's just come back later when these two people are going to be there, it could be so much better. And so that's that's partly it, too. Very interesting information. So you have to develop your observation skills. You have totally. to not shy away from situations where there's grief or even very happy moments you just have to embrace everything basically and you also have to be able to anticipate certain situations so you can get the best shots yeah you have to control yourself too like you can't like if you know if your team basically dunk you know it's like dunking the basketball at the last minute or last, you have to control your emotions <laughs> so there's a dichotomy there because you have to be emotional but you also have to control your emotions and it's like it's 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 interesting you can't you you know you're you're there but you're not there and so that's that's you have to be comfortable with that yeah. uh, tension you have to be an emotional professional right 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 <laughs> I'm sure it's clear to the listeners that you've been working on many, many assignments. I think I read somewhere that you've worked on over 6,000 assignments, which is really surreal to imagine, actually. It's, it's so much work, so many interesting experiences, so many cultures that you've been exposed to. Is there anything you haven't photographed yet that you're eager to add to your portfolio one day? Um, you know, it's funny. I have, um, I've, at this point in time... <laughs> I just kind of want, there's this, there's this, uh, the desire to photograph just peace, right? Just like the peace of life. Uh, there's so much partisanship. There's so much chaos. It seems, you know, I just want to go photograph doves for a while. <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, that's high up on my list. I'd lo I'd love to go to some just really green, area of like ireland just photograph sheep <laughs> that's my dream too just go to switzerland and photograph sheep and cows there we go doves and sheep and cows like just <laughs> take a break um i think that's kind of like real life you know i have a lot of urban experiences i've photographed a lot and you know and around the world in different places but i just feel like it um I kind of would just like to do some of that just to bring out that part. 
Yeah, it's nice to have a balance. It's important to have a balance, and I hope you get a chance to photograph doves in the future and relax. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they have those daily projects. Some people do them. Um, not a three six five project where you take photos every day, but more just so shooting at home, just daily life. I've seen lots yeah. of things like that. They're very relaxing, relaxing to look at. So I can imagine it's relaxing to take them as well. Yeah, hang it. In, yeah, hang it in like a hotel room or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just like daily snapshots of your life, relaxing, enjoying life. <laughs> oh, I love some of the 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 video that is done some of the scenes like on apple tv like when you're when you're basically some of the aerials from around the world uh i don't know i think it's shot in 8k at a super high frame rate and you're just like it's so slow and beautiful uh you know if i could make a living doing that that would be that would be enjoyable okay that's the next goal for you then yeah <laughs> you have another company called cubaworkshops.com and that gives traveling photographers a chance to experience Cuba and all of its glory and Cuba means a lot to you because of your heritage. I think it's wonderful that you were able to use that thing that was so meaningful to you, that dream of yours and turn it into a photography company. Do you have any business advice for photographers who want to turn their dreams into sustainable businesses? Well, Here's here's the challenge, I think, in starting any business, and certainly one that I faced with Cuba Workshops was that is my own inner critic, right? Um, is this feeling of it's I, I think that like most people who are creative, uh, especially when they see the just a voluminous amount of photography and photographers out there, there's this feeling of how could I do this? What could I possibly add? You know, you feel like you've got the whole negative self-talk going on. You've got the imposter syndrome that wants to take over. Um, you know, you, you, you're doing a new thing and you're, you're just biologically speaking, you're basically your, your body is fighting you from doing anything different than, you know, eating nachos and watching television. You know, it's like, so I would just say uh, the one thing, and it's, it's kind of like business advice, but sort of not really. It's it's like it's just it's fun. It's just to be bold, and and to take risks and to just do it. Like I, I hate to say just do it. Like, but it's like it's like the Nike phrase. Like just do it, because <laughs> I it like and I just I'm like I want to hold on myself as a poor example, right? Which so of like of this example of of what I'm saying. I reserved the domain name cubaworkshops.com like 15 or 20 years ago during like the Bush administration before Obama. And I basically was like, I knew, I knew that one day Cuba would change. Right. And I wanted to be there to create these workshops. And so uh, basically when I left the Tribune, uh, the New York times asked me if I wanted to basically lead a workshop to Cuba. I knew somebody who had recommended me to them, thought I'd be good. And so I went with the New York Times uh, and I, as like their expert, Cuba expert, I prepared like three talks, um, which is pretty challenging to talk to New York Times readers about stuff because they're a smart crew. And uh, I was there for 10 days. And then while I was there, SVA, School of Visual Arts in New York, happened to be there uh, with the uh, last few days I was there teaching their own photo workshop. Uh, and I had been a teacher, online instructor with SVA, um, the, some connections I made through my blog. And they, I said, hey, let's meet up. And so I met up. I got to see the situation for what it was. And I was like, I could totally do this, right? <laughs> I could totally do this. Well, SVA stopped doing workshops to Cuba. It was just too much for them institutionally to handle. But I'm like, let me take this over. I'll, 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 I'll keep this going. And so I kind of took some of their, with their permission, um, I kind of uh, uh, took a little bit of their itinerary and made it my own, and brought on my cousin who worked in who uh, works in who lives in Cuba and was working as a tour guide of all things of all things. Uh, and I just uh, a woman I hadn't met in like years, right? And all of a sudden, and she speaks great English, so she gets along really well with everybody in my in my groups. And I was like, okay, this is it. If I don't do this now, it's like I felt like the the you know. 
the God in the universe was telling me, just do this. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And um, then I put it out there. I'm, okay, keyboardworkshops.com. I'm doing this. Uh, I've got the itinerary. I've got the team in place. I, I got a handle on the finances. That was a very intimidating aspect to it is the financing and the logistical and the legal and all these things. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not, it wasn't super complicated. It was, it was complicated. It wasn't super complicated. And I saw that there were other photographers who didn't even speak Spanish, didn't even, hadn't really had much, had so much less experience in Cuba than I had. And yet they were running workshops. And I'm like, why am I not doing this? This is like, this is, I've got to do this. So yeah, so I've done, I did three of them and then the pandemic hit and then everything kind of fell by the wayside. And uh, so we're picking that back up and we'll be doing some later this fall. But um, yeah, I mean, I think if you take stock of your situation, take stock of your competitive advantage that you have over other people and whatever business you want to start, you know, what's your competitive advantage? What do you have passion-wise, resource-wise, you know, um, personnel-wise that you can leverage and create and do a business? Um, and like, maybe you'll do it for, you know, for free for a while or something like that for yourself. I mean, I didn't, but I was saying, do whatever it takes to get it going. Provide and just try to provide no obstacle in your path. And I think um, you'll, you'll find out soon enough whether you like being owned by it as much as you like owning the idea. Wonderful advice. It's so amazing that your cousin lives in Cuba and is a tour guide. I mean, it was meant to be, as you said. What an amazing <laughs> story. <laughs> yeah, it really was. And she was, and she was kind of like, you know, Alex, you know, what are you doing? You know, let's do this. And I'm like, okay, I'm like, to be honest, I'm, I'm partly doing it for my family in, in, in Cuba because, um, you know, I get to see them more. I get to pay my tour manager more. And it means so much more, you know, for her to be paid. So it, it, it's almost like I needed an altruistic reason as well to do, to work on a project in addition to making it, you know, just about myself. Yeah, sometimes we need that. I was recently reading about something called the four tendencies. I'm not hmm. sure if you've heard of that, but essentially like four types of people, obviously it's impossible to label someone and say that they're just this or just that. But there are these four tendencies, and one of them is uh, called the uh, obliger. Essentially, you are motivated when you are able to help people. But when it comes to your own motivation, you would rather eat nachos at home and watch TV, basically, like when it comes to your <laughs> But if a project involves, and this is what I am, by the way, if a project involves helping someone or you know it's going to work for the greater good, then you're completely, highly, extremely motivated. So... Maybe that's something you can relate to. But yeah, I mean, there are different ways of approaching projects and businesses. And it's all about understanding yourself and also, yeah, being able to help people. That's definitely a great source of motivation. Yeah, yeah. And all the subjects that we hire, too. Like, I know, you know, we both know all the locations, you know, because I've been, I've been traveling there for like many, many years. I, I started going there first in 1995. So it's like we know all these locations, we know all these people, uh, and so you know this is not journalism, right? This is just basically photography, and so we pay our subjects, and we pay them better than other photographers do uh, who run workshops because we know we they tell us <laughs> they're like, oh, you're paying us this much? I'm like, totally. Why not? Like you deserve it, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, it must be fulfilling for you because you're helping other people who are interested in photography. You're helping people from a country that you love. And it's just a, it's a great cycle of uh, support and appreciation and knowledge. Yeah. So, yeah. So when the pandemic hit and we had to cancel one of our workshops and I knew it was crushing for a lot of people that we normally work with there. So we actually had a fundraiser for everybody. And uh, I was overblown by the generosity of the former students uh, on the workshop who basically understood like because they'd lived they'd seen it and so they basically donated and we basically gave all every penny that we got to the people that we used to work with there in in Havana um, and elsewhere so just I mean we couldn't keep it going right but it was just like it just helped uh, a little bit during that period of time that's incredible that's so beautiful to hear and it just shows the power of community and photographers who are just people who experience a certain place and feel an emotional connection to it. If they know that the people in that place are struggling, then they would be more than willing to help, as you said, because they, they know what it's like there. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. 
Alex, I have one more question for you, and that is, what is the one thing you'd like to achieve in this great big photography world? <laughs> to change the world. <laughs> to photograph doves. What's that? Photograph doves. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say one, I mean, like personally speaking, I'd love to finally create that photo book that I've been talking about Cuba that I've been talking about for who knows how long. Uh, I just got like decades worth of pictures and I lived there for six months once. I took a leave of absence from the LA Times and, and lived in Cuba for six months and had a, took a diary. So I'm thinking of marrying my photographs with some some journal entries uh, during that time. So that's that's one thing. And then the other thing is, it, man, it would be amazing to see what I saw once, which was I saw a photojournalist picture being held up by legislators in the Capitol. I mean, who would not want that? Like, you've got a captured audience of, like, the most powerful people, you know, legislators in the country, and they're and they're basically looking at this guy, looking at this guy's photo that's blown up to a three foot four, three by four billboard type, yeah, uh, picture. It's yeah, so that that kind of thing would be would be great, just to feel as if your images are having some kind of impact for the greater good. That's a really interesting answer. Alex, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I learned a lot about photojournalism from you. Thank you for sharing the behind-the-scenes stories, and thank you for the laughs as well. I appreciate it every moment, and I wish you all the best with your photography journey. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here, and I really appreciate your opportunity to, to, do, to speak with you. Thank you so much. The Great Big Photography World wouldn't be what it is without our incredible listeners. We're grateful for the time you take to listen to other photographers' stories and share your feedback with us. If you'd like to help us keep this podcast running smoothly, you can become a member on our website. In return for your help, we'll provide you with all kinds of exciting perks. Go to greatbigphotographyworld.com. There's a link to it in the show notes. I learned a lot from Alex thanks to all of his stories and his interesting experiences as a photojournalist and director, and I hope that you did too. I hope that this episode inspired you to connect with your subjects and really get to know what you're shooting to have the best possible experience. See you next week. There's a simple reason why photographycourse.net is the highest rated photography community in the world. It's because the people who use it made it that way. Why not join us right now? Improve your skills, get exposure, and discover an exciting new world of photography. While you're at it, claim your special discount code by going to photographycourse.net and entering the coupon code PODCAST to get 50% off your first year as a premium member. <laughs>